my one thing I, w- I was definitely very motivated to become professional you know so I was I remember having a phone conversation with Declan Kidney at the time and um, he, he just said to me listen we don't really watch much of the Premier Premier League games and I was kind of like well listen is that is that not your job even the first year at Trinity I, I didn't even play the senior team I played under 20s Hello and welcome to the Offfield Rugby Pod. This is a podcast for young, ambitious rugby players where I chat with people at the top of the game about their journey and get their insights. I'm your host, Brian Moylet, and today I'm chatting with Roger Wilson. We chat about his journey from playing schools rugby in RBAI to moving to Trinity College, not making the first team when he went there, playing with the 20s, getting his break, playing in the lower levels of the All-Ireland League and from there getting noticed by Ulster. He talks about his mindset and the focus that he had when he was younger in wanting to become a pro and the sacrifices that he had to make to get there. He gives good insights into how as a young player you get noticed by coaches and talks about what it was like in Northampton where he speaks about how he played the best rugby of his career alongside players like Dylan Hartley and Chris Ashton. We also chat about what he has been up to since retirement. He is currently working as a sports agent and he's also coaching American football, which is really interesting to hear. If this is your first time listening to the pod, welcome. Appreciate you clicking in. Please make sure you're subscribed so that you don't miss an episode. And also, would you please now open your phone and leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. Would really appreciate that. And also be sure to send the pod on to some friends. Quick word about our sponsor and then it's episode number 50 with Roger Wilson. A lot of people stress about money. Where should you be investing? Are you prepared if there's a crash? And loads more. And if you're not an expert, finances can be really daunting. I know the people at Sparks Wealth and they're brilliant. What they do is they educate you on your finances without any jargon. They create a personalized plan for you and manage your money so that it's working for you and so you don't need to be worrying about it. You can book a free, no obligation Zoom call now on their website, sparkswealth.ie. So I read that growing up you were a keen footballer. Footballer as in soccer? Yeah. Is that right or no? I read that. I think your Wikipedia page that you wanted to be a footballer it said. Maybe someone edited. Like I was never any, I was never any good. As in, I was never going to make it professional. But at one stage, in um, probably going from uh, 13, 14 years of age, um, I did kind of lose interest in rugby quite a bit. Um, preferred just kicking around the football and in, in around the school in the backyard and stuff like that. So. Um, and, and at the school I went to in uh, RBAI in Belfast they don't play soccer until I call it soccer here now living in America too long you have to call it soccer but uh, they don't play it until 16 so you, you, you never really got the chance to play it um, early on but uh, yeah I enjoyed kicking it around but um, I just kind of fell out of love a little bit of rugby around that age and then a couple of coaches and including my parents pulled me aside and said, listen, catch yourself on. You're never, you're, you're never going to become like a, or go anywhere far in football. So um, 
focus on on the rugby and uh, that's what it did change my mind about a year later and then it all was kind of straightforward from there why did you lose interest in it i don't know i don't know there were i mean it was it was um i've literally no idea i mean it seems so far away now though in the past but i just didn't really have much uh much interest at times i just preferred kicking around a football um no more to it than that you know 13 14 years of age um the thought of becoming professional wasn't even entered your mind at that stage so uh, it was just purely a fun kind of thing um i just didn't enjoy it as much to be honest um grew up obviously kind of playing mini rugby and everything had a, a pretty uh you know my family's very much heavily involved in rugby so that was always what i was gonna you know st- at least start off playing um and it was all going great and everything but just got to that age and i was kind of like oh you know um enjoyed kicking around a, a football or a bit more than kind of playing rugby so i don't know if there's any particular reason but um it's funny my, my dad at the time he was uh he he said, "Okay, well, fair enough. Okay, if you wanna if you wanna go and try football, we'll go down to uh, these lo- this local team or whatever, and, and uh, they're doing like regional trials or whatever, and let's see how you fare against other kids your age who've been playing football uh, seven days a week since they were kind of five years old." Um, yeah, and I pretty soon realised that I wasn't much good, so you turned and went straight back to rugby. Yeah, and then so when you're in RBA, I. Do you get pretty serious then, like playing schools rugby when you're kind of 15, 16, 17? Uh, yeah, it was um, much like probably you would imagine most of the kind of schools are, the top schools around Ireland, uh, particularly kind of Dublin. Uh, a lot of the schools are now, it's it's almost like a full-on kind of gig. Um, and once you get to kind of past, I know in, in uh, an Ulster school, Medallion Shield is junior, junior uh, rugby in... in uh, down south once you get beyond that and get into kind of senior rugby it starts to get pretty pretty serious and, and pretty much takes up your whole week so um whether it be three times a week or four times a week in the afternoon training as, as a squad or as a forward uh, pack and then maybe lunchtime two or three times a week uh, doing line outs circuits and all that yeah pretty much takes a whole uh, heavy toll on things so um yeah it, it, it's 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 tough to balance that and doing all the work and studying and then trying to trying to have any sort of social life at all and, and trying to have any 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 energy at all as well is, is tough but it, it gets pretty full on pretty fast was it around then when you were kind of like as you say training full on like i noticed like what um that you wanted to kind of go further in the game or like go professional play with ulster at that stage no not not at um it wasn't until honestly i think 17 years old whenever i was um lower sixth one and upper sixth and then you kind of met you're on the you're, you're you're talking about like going our schools and things like that um and then back then it was kind of around 2000 and it was a different academy setup that had back then it wasn't done through the it wasn't done through the provinces it was done through nationally through dublin so they used to pick i think around a dozen players uh each year who would go into like a national academy and what that was was pretty much three to four weeks during the summer pretty intense training and then you go back to your uh province and literally train once a week it, it was it was a bit yeah it was very almost like a bit of amateur kind of ethos about it but um 
it wasn't until I got invited to that, that that was basically the pathway to go on professional. And that was kind of 17, 18 years of age. Um, and in all honesty, at that stage as well, I, was, I thought myself lucky to be invited into that uh, because I was, you know, I had uh, the likes of, I was playing back row artist schools with Dennis Leamy and Shane Jennings, who were, uh, I, I would quite happily say, pretty far ahead of me at that stage, you know, and, and um, so to get invited into that was was great, but uh, it was an opportunity which I knew was going to then hopefully lead it into going into professional. And uh, so, yeah, full steam ahead from there. And um, it meant you had to stay within Ireland to study once you left school. So my original plan was to go over to England. It was going to be either uh, Loughborough University or I think, geez, it must be, I think it was Newcastle or Loughborough or something like that. Um, and just, yeah, because that's, that's pretty much what a lot of the guys from, from Ulster do, you know, whatever they finish school, they go over to England or Scotland or whatever. Um, but obviously that didn't, uh, it wasn't going to work if you're going to stay in the National Academy, you had to stay within Ireland. So then I decided to go down and play in Trinity College and play down there for a couple of years. So that was the path it took. So yeah, to answer your question, it's probably around 17 years of age where I thought it was actually going to be something that you could do for, uh, for a living. Yeah. And why, why then did you head down to Trinity? Like you had to stay within Ireland, but at the time was it there like division three or like quite lower down in the AIL like that? You didn't mind that, did you? No, and even the first year, um, even the first year at Trinity, I, I didn't even play the senior team. I played under 20s, and they were pretty competitive. Um, I, number one, I didn't want to stay at home. Um, I don't think my parents wanted me to stay at home either. Like, they just wanted to get rid of me. But uh, so it was, it was, I wanted to go somewhere different. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, you could have played, uh, you could have stayed at home and played Balamina or Dubgannon or something like that. But I still think at that age, I was still very underdeveloped and it was more about kind of uh, pursuing an academic life. You know, the chance to study at uh, Trinity College is, um, is uh, there's, there's there's not that many people get to do that, you know, so they, they gave me a chance to do that with a scholarship as well. And uh, yeah, it was kind of balancing the two. And I, I don't know, they were kind of third division at the time, but um, they had a good coach, Tony Smith, who I think he's still there. I'm not sure. Maybe he still is there. He's been there a long I think time. So. But uh, they, they had a good setup, so it was it was, um, it was the decision that I made at the, champ, uh, at the time was kind of a mix between the whole academic and the whole rugby side of it. Yeah, and how was it like you're in the academy and you were kind of in that setup, and then you go to Trinity and you weren't making the first team? And I know you're only young and stuff, but how was that? Did you kind of think you would be getting into it, or was that a bit of a setback playing with the twenties? Yeah, I mean, I went down with a guy, um, Matt McCulloch, who was also, he went on to play second row for Ireland. So he was my age group in school. Um, he went straight into the first team. And I didn't, uh, there was a guy, I forget his name now, but um, he was playing number eight for the first team. So I didn't break into the first team at the time. I wasn't too fussed, you know. Um, I knew I had weight to put on. I knew I had parts of the game to, to develop. Uh, so it was a no major rush, you know, I was 18, 19 years of age. Um, and then my second year then going into that, going into second year Trinity, uh, then broke into the first team straight away, pretty much. And then that year, um, I think I could player of the season for them as well. So I was kind of 19, 20 years of age. 
and that was a that was kind of the year that really things sort of took off quite a bit um at the end of that season uh alan solomon's became actually i think at the start of that season alan solomon's became director of rugby at ulster and um you know they were obviously trying to get as many guys back home who who've been playing abroad as possible. You know, so he they said um, it was Alan Clark actually who was involved in the academy at the time. Uh, he said to me, "Why do you come back and change your uh, university degree back to Queens, and then we can get you involved in the Ulster setup?" Uh, slightly fortuitous because there was a guy called Robbie Brink who's playing number eight for Ulster. He got a career-ending injury. Um, you know, and, and they just, that was, I think, first or second game into the season or whatever, or during pre-season, maybe it might have been. So um, I got a very late call there saying, listen, would you like to come back and you, you're, uh, we'll give you like a full-time a full-time contract so you can, you know, bypass the academy and we'll give you a full-time contract. And at, at sort of 19, 20 years of age, uh, I think it was 20, actually 20 years of age to be offered a full-time contract and also to be able to study at the same time it was, it was a bit of a no-brainer kind of thing. It was like, okay, yeah, listen, where do we sign? Um, you know, obviously money back then wasn't huge. Uh, probably still isn't great in terms of academy these days, but uh, it was just the opportunity to try and get involved in the professional team. So a little bit of luck um, was obviously a part of it, but uh, 20 years of age then signed full-time contract with Ulster and then did uh, change my university degree up to Queens. So did that uh, very, very slowly. Um, part time. Funny, like the first year that first year that I was there, we ended up doing a a field trip to uh, Magaluf for the course that I was on. So <laughs> you, you imagine telling trying to tell your head coach that you're uh, you know three or four months into your first professional concert, <laughs> I'm gonna piss off here to Magaluf for a week. Like, what kind it, of field trip was that? Uh, I don't know. It was, it was it was so I studied geography and economics. Um, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know exactly if we learned a whole pile that week apart from trying to survive on pot noodles with students. Yeah, nice one. And um, so like at 18 then, when you, were, when you were going down to Trinity, was there anything there in Ulster? Like you weren't kept on, was there an academy? You weren't kept on or Ulster weren't like, hey, we want you hanging around Belfast training. And you said the academy was centralized, but was it kind of you were stepping away from Ulster at that point and you were going off to Trinity and yeah there was no um there was no real it was all like an like a, as I say like a national uh centralized academy system back then so it didn't really matter where you went um and at that age uh, sorry at that stage that was probably around you know 2000 20 20 years ago 22 years ago around 2000 uh where there wasn't a great it's i mean the games changed a lot where they're probably now keeping an eye on guys who are sort of 15 16 years of age um there was no major rush to get people involved it was still a very kind of young amateur game back then or you know or, early in yeah. days so no there was no pressure from ulster to get to get me to stay there um definitely not uh so yeah, that was, um, and I don't think as well, I think the fact that they were, they're always pretty keen for you to try and do some studying in the part-time, you know, alongside it, the, you know, the fact that you get to go down to Trinity and do that is fine. But um, I guess the long-term view from them was like, yeah, we'd like to get them back eventually, but I don't think there was any uh, pushback initially. 
Yeah, right. And um, pretty cool as well, a fair play with the, when you weren't making the senior team in Trinity, but like focusing on what you need to get better at and what you need to improve on as a player. And then within a year, you're signing a professional deal with Ulster versus I know a lot of players can have the victim mentality. It's like, oh, I'm not here. I'm not there. I'm, I should be this or that or the other. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was like, I was, I was definitely very driven anyway. You know, um, it's very easy to go away to university or college or whatever and, and kind of, you know, live the, live the college life and, um, you know, do that and try and get through your degree and everything and have a social life. I find it very hard to balance those three things, having a social life trying to be as professional as possible with rugby and also trying to trying to do the studying as well um, particularly at a kind of big university like that uh, my one thing I, I was definitely very motivated to become professional you know so I was you know there's people going out sort of three four nights a week in, in college and I was I was kind of a bit dull in that way that I would you know I'll go out after the games and have a big blowout then but during the week, I was pretty focused on doing what I had to do to to kind of uh, get better as a rugby player. You know, whether that just be you know all the all the gym stuff that you do or, or whatever else. Um, and then same applied to whenever I came back and actually did sign um, with Ulster. So again, I wouldn't have gone out a whole pile. Wouldn't have done a, a lot of parting. I was very focused on just you know getting involved and starting playing first team rugby with Ulster. So that was. Probably a period of uh, two years from about 19, 18, 19 to 2021, where it was just very much focused on doing that. Um, and I think that was, it was just making sacrifices, really. You know, it's uh, something that's very hard to balance to try and do all three of those. It's is, is, uh, is a very difficult thing to do. So, um, yeah, I just put it down to that is that uh, any opportunity I had to try and get noticed to get back into. Ulster or to get into any kind of setup was um, I would have taken that definitely nice one and then did, how did you find it when you did get into that Ulster setup like at 2021 like how was that going in with all the full-time pros uh I mean listen at the start it was uh tough you know I, I came in I, th I think it was actually the I was came in late into the pre-season so they've been and obviously they're professional so they got a you know a better kind of um uh you know they're they're ahead of you anyway in terms of their physique and their physical attributes and skill attributes and mentality and all that but i came in towards the middle to end of pre-season that was a bit of a wake-up call you know especially that first couple of weeks but um after that you know it was grand you know it's you obviously kind of look up to a lot of the players and you sit back and you a lot of these guys you you're the ones who you, you kind of idolize quite a bit um but whenever you got the opportunity to to go full on in training or to to actually you know play a preseason game or whatever it was, then you just had to take it, you know. So um, yeah, it was it, it was good. I just think it's all, it's just about taking the opportunity and not if if you do get that opportunity to play a game, preseason game or go full on in training, you can't be you can't be nice. You got to get stuck into them, even though they're guys you probably respect and have watched some TV, you know, for the last number of years. You just gotta because I, I think sometimes you know as an older player. Uh, whenever it's playing for Ulster, you get these academy guys who get stuck into you and 
half of you is like, you know, would you just piss off? Like, you know, fuck's sake, you know, like calm down. It's, it's, it's Monday or Tuesday, you know, but at the end of the day, you, you got to look at it from their eyes there. That's how they get noticed. Um, and that's how the coach notices them. They want to see that they got something in them. So you can understand why they do that. Um, because uh, there's not many opportunities you do get. You, you might only get a few opportunities. And if you mess those up, then you'll just be kind of, you know, sent off somewhere else. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, were there more like full on back then when you were starting out? Like training was a pretty full metal jacket at times. Um, yeah, it was. It was different. You know, it was it, it was full on. Obviously, there was probably more like bone on bone training back then, definitely. But also, the training sessions were way longer. Um, we used to have maybe an hour and a half to two hours of training, followed by one full hour of fitness so sometimes wow. you do it for two two and a half to three hours which is uh, unbelievable and i think um in my early days at ulster we we became probably the fittest team in the league but um not particularly physical because we lost so much damn weight from all the training mm. all the aerobic training we did um but uh yeah there, there was there wasn't as much science behind it you don't have all the kind of gps and all the you know the collision stats and everything like you have nowadays um so a lot of it was more old school, definitely. Yeah. And why did you decide then to head off to Northampton after a couple of years? Well, I got, uh, so I'd done, um, I think I headed off when I was about 20, 27, I think. Um, I'd done probably five years at Ulster. I signed, after my first year, I signed a four year. Um, my breakthrough season actually got player of the season and uh, it, it was great. And, they gave me a four-year contract and at, at that stage I'm kind of still only 22 years old and uh, the novelty of professional rugby's you know it's, it's still pretty raw you know and it's great so they gave me a four-year contract and I'm like okay yeah where to sign you know loving this life and everything but very soon after that within a year or two um also starts doing pretty badly as a team and we uh, start struggling and you know I think we lost something like 13 14 games on the trot finished now down near the bottom of the table and um it all wasn't as kind of uh, rosy as it, it it was that first season um so that was the time whenever there was uh Mark McCall was the head coach uh, obviously got on to do you know great things at Saris um but it was just, I was, I mean, I always wanted at some stage to move away, to go and experience different stuff. I never, I'm, I don't consider myself like a, like a home bird by any means, you know, um, always wanted to go away and do something different, play at different places. Uh, so it was just a case of when, and we were just, we're, we just weren't doing well. And I was like, okay, let's not get sit and stay. And if I stay, I'm probably going to stay forever. But if, if not, then I'll get away. The other thing about it was I was keen to, I'd only been capped once by Ireland at the time, and I was not getting much love from the from the senior setup, the Ireland setup. And uh, I thought if I'd gone and played in the Premiership, that it was going to be more of an opportunity to get back into the mix, um, which wasn't to be in the end. But that was the thought process behind it. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a mixture. Yeah, of just kind of things not going very well at Ulster, just getting a bit kind of stale there, and and, and looking for opportunities elsewhere. So. Uh, the opportunity to go to Northampton came along. Uh, myself and Neil Best went out there. And um, to be honest, aside from the first year that I had in my Ulster career, uh, Northampton was definitely the most enjoyable four years uh, that I had. 
in, 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 in total. Yeah, and yeah, like Northampton at the time, one of the top teams in England and Europe. And was there any talk like you going there, it was like a step up from where Ulster were at the time and you're playing at the top of Europe. And was there any talk like of the Ireland camp or because, you know, players that go abroad now, I think it's pretty much, you know, that you're not playing with Ireland. But back then, was there any? Well, the, there was there was no set rule in saying that if you go, I mean, you think about kind of Simon Zebo, for example, like if, if he, you know, he went away and played at, at Racing and he wasn't going to get involved because of that. There was almost like a, I, I don't think it was set rule, but it was an, you know, an, un, an unsaid sort of thing. Uh, there was nothing back then at the time. Um, the only one that I can think of who was uh, Tommy Bowe was, he, he, he also left the same time as us and he went to Ospreys. But he was more established in the Irish setup by then. He'd already played, you know, I can't remember how many caps, but he was a kind of mainstay in the team. Um, so, no, there was no, there was nothing saying that if you went abroad that you weren't going to play or not. So that was my thinking is that you go ahead and play in a, in a, in a competition, which is um, at the time anyway, debatable whether it still is the case or not. That is a better competition uh, week in, week out. And you're going to get recognised more. Um and, you know, to that, I think I went over and played probably the best rugby that I have played. Um, and, you know, the year we, we actually got to the Hanning Cup final, one against Leinster, I think in 2011, I think it was. And I think that season, I probably play, played the best rugby I'd been playing. Um, and I remember... Ireland returned down in Australia at the end of the season, um, and I didn't get picked for the squad or the even the sort of the wider squad before that. To you know, whenever the meet up, and um, I remember having a phone conversation with Declan Kidney at the time, and um, he he just said to me, "Listen, we don't really watch much of the Premier Premier League games," and I was kind of like, "Well, listen, is that is that not your job? You know, yeah. you don't have a huge uh, talent pool, and we're only." We're only an hour's flight away. He, yeah. ATV is not that difficult to subscribe for. So is that not part of your job to be doing that? Um, and, oh, you know, some convoluted answer was given. Uh, but anyway, that kind of was like, you know, a bit of a kick in the stones. Always the answer coming back was, you know, you're, you're, in, you're in our thinking and, you know, you're next in line kind of thing. And then, lo and behold, someone goes down and uh, in the first game or whatever and... Um, and I'm thinking, oh, this is a good opportunity to get called. Sit down the phone, and then I get a, a message saying that um, one of the under twenties boys have been called up. And uh, it was it was actually Reese Ruddock, who's obviously gone on to have a brilliant career, you know. But uh, to, and, and at that stage, I was like, you know, well, you know, this isn't uh, this isn't how it panned out to be. Um, but you know, say la vie, you know, it was uh, that's the way it worked, and. Um, uh, so kind of just, I mean, as I said, enjoy my time out there, but it wasn't to be that the plan was to go and go over there and try and get more Irish caps. You know, I mean, I still went to some of the, um, some of the, not when I was in Northampton, but whenever I came back to Ulster, funnily enough, uh, straight away, I was invited down to the Irish setup and, and doing their camps and for, for a year or two. And, um, not never, never went anywhere. I was probably kind of, you know, 31, 32, so I was maybe losing a bit of pace and things like that. But, um, yeah, it, it wasn't a bit at that stage anyway. Yeah. Um, 
What do you think it was in Northampton that allowed you to have like the best four years of your career during those four years? Um, I don't know. I think it was, you know, you're probably arguably, you know, physically in the best shape around that kind of age. Um, the, the coaching was very, it was very, it probably suited my game a bit. You know, I, I was never really a player to be, I was never lightning fast or didn't have uh, exceptional ball skills. Um, what I could do was, um, you know, I, I could defend well. I could uh, I could get stuck in and be, I was kind of uh, physical. Um, I'd be durable. I could turn up every week. Uh, I could do all the kind of the very basic stuff very well and, and just the coaches could rely on me to do that. Um, so I think the coach and setup that we had at the time was very old school as well. You, like Dorian West, who came from the Leicester, you know, the old days of Leicester, whenever they won all those trophies and stuff. So um, I just think it was it fitted into the whole game plan and also kind of life off the pitch was great. You know, you're kind of a young single guy living in England, doing what you want to do and, and then all the days off and stuff. So in terms of the enjoyment off the field, it was also great. You know, we had a, we had, we had a young squad there. Um, you know, James Downey, obviously, he, he would have been playing centre at the time. Uh, Dylan Hartley, Chris Ashton, and all these guys who were kind of young at the time, just breaking into the England squad. Uh, we used to have some great, you know, we, we played a lot of rugby and trained hard, but we used to have some great weekends. You know, we used to go down to, after game, get the train down to, to, to London and stay down there and go, or go up to Manchester and, and all that. So life off the pitch was, was as good as life on the pitch. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, they say it's like Saris nowadays, they do a lot of those team trips and whatever and that don't train as much and a lot of that stuff away from the field is talked about. Like, I don't know, you know, maybe you were so tight off the field, it could have helped on the field too. I think it makes a difference, yeah. Um, there's obviously a, a bit of a fine line, you know. Uh, there's definitely times whenever I would have stepped across the line for sure, like, but... Um, uh, you you got to, I think, I still have an old school philosophy of like, you know, there's no um, better way of kind of bonding as a team than, than over a few beers. So all this crap that, you know, you go tent and bowling or, I don't know, paint bowling or whatever. Um, boys just can't wait to get out of there. <laughs> like really, but, uh, if you go, if you have a night out with a few beers, you know, you kind of break down those barriers and, and that's how you really get to know someone. So, um I still, I still have that philosophy that I think that's the best way to do it, and I think that's why Saris did so well back in, back in those kind of years as well. Um, so it is, it's about kind of getting that balance right because obviously the, the dangers of stepping overboard on that nowadays with all social media and uh, the, the mad kind of PC world that we live in these days, uh, you got to be very careful, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, it's it's getting that balance right. Yeah, 100%. And you mentioned there the durability, and I don't know, did you play 350-odd games or something professionally? What Was there anything to that? Or, you know, once again, you're not a winger or a scrum half, like playing number eight, play, playing a physical position and not picking up so many injuries? Not really. I think a lot of it's down to, a lot of it's luck, obviously. Um Genetics is a, is a thing. You, know, you got to count that. Some people are just genetically more susceptible to to getting injured. Um, I think 
I, the way you play, I don't know. Like, you know, some people are more kamikaze than others. I wouldn't have considered myself like that style of player, you know. I, I would like to get stuck in, but it probably would have been uh, not as um, reckless as a lot of other players would have been. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult one to answer, I think. I think the f I always... I wanted to play for as long as possible. My my thing always was like, um, whenever each time I like, I, I would have been, I wouldn't have been one for training hard at all. Like I, whenever I was younger, yeah, but whenever I kind of got older, I was kind of you know just do what you have to do to get by, which is pretty par for the course for a lot of the players. But uh, I always had it in my mind that whenever you had had the opportunity to play or pull on the jersey at the weekend, that you were going to give a hundred percent. So I, I wouldn't have held back then, but. I don't know. I think um, just wanting to just want to stay in the game as as long as possible, you know. And uh, yeah, there's got there's got to be a certain amount of a certain amount of it has to be down to kind of how your your the structure of how your body's made up, you know, muscular skeletal system and all that ligaments. And some people definitely have more susceptibility to kind of uh, injuries than other. There's no doubt about that. Um, and also luck is a thing as well, definitely. Yeah, and. So when you retired, you got into a startup Tackle Smart. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so we we moved out to um, Texas for four and a half years ago. Uh, my wife and I, and at the time, we were uh, we were we had a, we moved over with a, a year and a half year old son and a and maybe a three or four month year old daughter, um, and. Yeah, so I mean, the reason why I moved to, to Texas is a whole totally different story. It's completely random. There's no real purpose to it. But whenever I got there, I just finished my master's in, in strength and conditioning or, or sports science or whatever. And um, I started working in a facility in North Dallas called Michael Johnson Performance, um, which is a high performance sports unit. You know, they do everything from uh, American football to basketball to you know gymnastics or to track and field athletes um and you know obviously the you know being a lot of footballers there american footballers there you get a, a lot of discussions between that and rugby you know which is a tougher sport you know the comparisons and uh they all think you know chatted to a bunch of nfl players and college players high school and they all think rugby players are, are not because they don't wear the helmets and the pads and everything like that um but on the flip side of that like at least at least whenever we're tackling or, or contacts coming we can see where it's coming from you know generally it's in your kind of peripheral vision whereas in football you know you're getting blindsided or whatever you know you, you're not braced for the contact so uh there's arguments for both um anyway they i uh it came to sort of the tackling like that's the biggest sort of similar comparison between the two sports is, is the tackling side of it I was kind of interested in how they were taught how to tackle, uh, like currently, whether they're involved in the NFL team or, or growing up. And uh, it turns out that they're not taught how to tackle at all. Like literally, I mean, not at all. Like Some of the teams might be, but whenever they're taught how to tackle, it'll be the complete opposite of what you're taught in rugby. So you're, you're taught in, in, in rugby, obviously, to get your head behind contact and, and, and um, cheek to cheek and all that, and not put your head in harm's way. Whereas uh, in American football, it's complete opposite. You're taught to put your head right in front of contact, you know, 
uh, bite the ball or put your head to the numbers or whatever terminology they use to try and make sure they stop that momentum as quickly as possible. But, you know, if you put your head there, that's where all the momentum, that's where all your, your head's going to get the momentum, the shaking around. So for me, it was a kind of like, well, what the hell? Like, you yeah. know, complete opposite of what, what we're taught. No wonder uh, there's been issues with, you know, CTE and um, concussions and, and, and all that going on. Uh, and, and they all agree. They, they say, listen, there, there's a big problem in, in American football right now. The, the numbers are decreasing. The numbers of youth players decreasing massively. Um, they've been going down probably for the last 15 to 20 years since a lot of this information has been coming out. Um, I think in, I think within the NFL anyway, I think 60 to 65% of players in NFL are African-American population of America, African-Americans about 12%. Um, and the number of, uh, the number of white people playing football in America is about 20 to 25%. Whereas the population is the transverse of that around 65, I think. So, and, and that's on the decline as well, especially in youth level. They're all kind of, a lot of the parents are getting more concerned about this and they're starting to send their kids to play, um, you know, football or like soccer, uh, lacrosse, baseball, a lot of non-contact sports because of this, because of the issues that they're coming up with concussions. Um, so they, they kind of said to me, you know, like, well, well, it'd be a great idea to try because you because you come from like a background where you're taught how to tackle as a five, six year old correctly without putting your head in harm's way to start coaching um, at different age groups, start coaching how to tackle properly where kids aren't going to get, you know, all these long term issues with brain injuries and things like that. So that's that's really where it started. Uh, so it's been going probably three, three and a bit years now. Um, and uh, it's gaining momentum each year. Obviously, kind of COVID had its difficulties, you know, where the, the schools closed and things like that. But um, yeah, it's, it's got a lot of potential and it's going pretty well. Nice one. And so you coach in that center and then like what different groups come through, is that it? So the way I do it is I, I coach, uh, I do a couple of different things. I do like small, small group coaching, um, majority of the, the clients that are coach are, are youth athletes over here, which are considered anything from uh, kind of eight years old to 14. All right. So they're, the reason being is because the parents are concerned about them going from flag football, which is touch rugby, basically to full time tackle or full tackle, um, taking that step up and also going from elementary to middle school, which is, you know, primary school to secondary or grammar school whatever you call it um and then and then also do team sessions as well so I'll go and take the whole team and how to do the the tackling but also get the coaches involved in, in terms of giving them a lot of new drills and and ideas about how they can uh take things forward because honestly they they have a they have a program in america american football called like a youth program called heads up football which um some of it's okay but a lot of it is just uh the whole principle behind it is just keeping your head up okay and if you keep your head up you're more susceptible to whiplash and you're also more susceptible to being knocked backwards okay because you're not you don't have that kind of leverage position so it's um it's, it's about trying to train people to deal with because they're a very old-fashioned old school in their way of coaching 
but there's a there's a slow cultural change on that definitely yeah um i walked down when i was in linwood i walked onto the football team for a bit and i just found it wild they used to say get your head on the ball so guys used to just run as hard as they can and get their head towards the ball but like you say you're just yeah. i would see lads getting sparked all the time at training like it's hard to believe the thing about it is that uh because you have the because you have the shoulder pads and you have the helmets uh there's a misconception that the helmets especially are going to be the thing that stops the concussion um and there's all every time you know they they're marketed in a way that you know they've got these inner like sort of foam or cushing inside mm. them to act as a shock, a shock absorber uh essentially at the end of the day like helmets are, are great for stopping you know uh you know fractured skulls or broken noses or abrasions or whatever it is um but it's still if you put your head right in front of where someone's running you're still going to get that uh you know the brain is basically like a yolk inside an egg which is still going to shake inside the helmet's not going to stop that the only way you can stop that is actually getting your head fully out of the out of the contacts away um so that that's that's kind of the way the analogy that i put towards it but uh for the most part like a lot of the younger coaches will get it the older coaches still don't get it there's they're kind of uh they don't people don't like change you know and it takes some time to to kind of um to be able to talk them around on that yeah and another one is is i was like 23 when i did it I tried it out and you know playing rugby you tackle properly and i remember being like oh, i'm not going to be like these idiots the way they just have no disregard for their head and then you put on the pads you put on the helmet and you just feel invincible you're like all right let's go let's smash anything i can well yeah that's the thing and i can understand that like i mean that's why whenever i do the coaching um i tell them not to wear any pads or not to wear helmets mm. you want them to feel vulnerable you want them mm. to sense of like you know shit where to yeah i'm a bit kind of nervous about where i put my head here and that means they'll they'll make sure they concentrate on their technique because as soon as you put on tell them to put on their helmets and i've seen it time and time again you'll do half a session without it and then you'll tell them okay go and put on your helmets and shoulder pads bang all of a sudden they're just going 100 mile an hour and they're just going no no technique and they're just back to back to square one so that's why I do kind of virtually all of the training or, or coaching that I do is without the helmets and pads on. Um, so that that's the kind of the, the thought process behind it. But uh, ultimately, you still have to do a little bit with the helmets on because that's the way they're going to play. Um, they have to feel comfortable by doing that. But the other thing is they, uh, the the big argument behind it is that you know football or American football is more of a game of finer margins in terms of like the field position that you give up. So it's more of a game of inches in terms of you know first downs, second downs, and all that. So I can understand why they're wanting to really close the space and sprint towards a, uh, a ball carrier and stop them dead in their tracks. But you you see the amount of missed tackles in in football because they're literally just sprinting at them as hard as they can. Okay, and and because you do that, then they're very easy to be sidestep or juked, as they say over here. Uh, and more times than not, they'll have another missile coming in from another direction to stop them um but that's what i'm trying to get them to to kind of get their heads around is that you know if you if you close the space but then that lasts sort of 10 15 yards slow down a little bit you know you're not going to you're not really going to concede ground but you know the chances of you making a tackle are going to be a lot higher than, than missing it mm. and 
then as well i see your agent at the moment so when when you start that was that when you went over to texas as well no i started at um we started this the agency just before moving out to america actually probably uh six months before that um so probably going on nearly five years ago now uh, myself and uh, john andres who's my cousin we started that and John's pretty much run it for the last uh, kind of four and a half years. Uh, I stepped away from it. We helped get it set up and I stepped away from it. And he started dealing with that back in the UK uh, and Ireland. Um, we also got a guy on the ground now in France who's part of our team, James Percival, who John would have played with at Harlequins. Uh, John's been involved with a lot of clubs around uh, England, Ireland and uh, Scotland. And, and Percy in England and France, and you know, obviously my connections too. So we're pretty we're pretty well spread over. So yeah, I've come back into it about six months ago. The thinking being that you know with um, rugby, you know, taking off, albeit pretty slowly over in the states, but getting that World Cup in twenty thirty one, I think is a, is a real step forward for things. So uh, coming full time on that, and going to deal with um, MLR and any players who want to come here, or any players want to go play over there. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, for me, the, the hands-on stuff. So only really started, you know, the last six months or whatever, but, uh, I've been in the background for the last sort of few years anyway. Cool. And, um, yes, as you mentioned there, it's mainly you're like on the ground in America and helping with players, you know, in the MLR and getting, getting spots there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a kind of there's players who uh, coming to play in America is, is attractive as it is not financially yet, but uh, hopefully that will improve. Um, you, I mean, you're talking about coming to, to apply a trade in a country, which is one of the, the, the most kind of appealing country in the world to live in. Um, so I think that's a big selling point in itself. Uh, so there's a lot of people who are playing rugby back, in Ireland, UK, for example, who are on in Ireland only has four provinces. There's only a number of professional contracts that they can give out, but the opportunity then to come out and uh, you know either study at an early age and go on and play professional out here, or else come and uh, play professionally in, in MLR is uh, is a big carrot. Uh, rugby aside, in terms of just being able to kind of live live out in America, whether that be short term or long term. Um, I think things are progressing nicely. You know, the MLR is now in its fifth year, going into sixth, I think. Um, things are slowly but surely falling into place. You know, fingers crossed they'll continue to go that way. But at the same time, you know, there's also a lot of players who are playing in the MLR at the moment who also have the capacity uh, to go and play overseas in Europe. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a kind of two-pronged approach to, you know, getting players to come over here and also getting other players to, to go uh, back and, you know, get some exposure, whether it be overseas. Um, also, there's a lot of guys, you know, who are playing down in South America as well, who I know they have the, uh, the SLAR, S-L-A-R, the league that's kicked off recently as well. Um, so been pretty heavily involved in the unions down there, uh, you know, to get some of their guys to come up here. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, and also been involved in Japan as well. So yeah, it's a bit of a, um, it's, it's been a, a busy kind of six months anyway, but uh, we're making great progress anyway. That's cool. That's exciting. 
Yeah, we. I mean, yeah, it is. And the thing we, the thing we kind of think is, we've got very good tech. I mean, because we have such good networks back in Europe, especially um, with all the kind of Premiership, you know, top fourteen pro to pro uh, teams, uh, URC, we have the opportunity, other relationships with the directors of rugby to kind of place guys as well. Um, and, and given kind of another sort of six months to a year, we'll have those fully fledged relationships over here as well. So we want to try and be uh, spaced out as much as we can uh, and Japan too. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the idea is, is trying to make it a, an agency where we're, I mean, we're not, we're not looking for huge numbers, but we want to make sure it's a player player first agency um you know we've all there's the guys who are involved with us we've all had uh agents um some have had for the most part good experiences some there's been one or two bad experiences so we're trying to take the things we've uh we weren't too happy with and put those right and make sure i think if you look at the best agents in the world they're the ones that have the close relationships with the players they put the player first they don't always go with the side of the of the club or the team um, and it's about trying to almost acting as a, as a kind of mentor role in many ways. Uh, you know, not, not just have the self-interest of the agency at heart, but also, you know, what's going to be best for the player, not just obviously for the rugby first, but, you know, in terms of like, what do they do after rugby as well? Um, help them develop as a player, as a person uh, for, for life after rugby as well, which I, I think is pretty important, which is something that isn't really focused upon that much. Yeah, for sure. And... What was uh, how'd you move over to Texas at first, or why'd you decide to make that move? Um, so my wife, she's uh, she's a U.S. citizen. Uh, she's she's originally from Brazil, so um, it's a long old story. Like, but she she moved to America when she was pretty much in high school. It was an exchange student, and um, uh, lived in went to Louisiana in the middle of our sending the war, like hated it, was with a family who were, um, yeah, but kind of odd, you know, and she was like, okay, get me out of here. So she moved down to Florida and set up camp there and lived there for about 10 years, I think. Um, and then it was whenever I was in Northampton, actually, I went over, uh, we, we had a, few, a week off in spring break and uh, myself and Callum Clark and Alex Waller went over um, and just went over there for a week, a bit of, a bit of partying and all that. And uh, she, my wife, she was working in a bar at the time and uh, kind of uh, got, meet, got meeting her and did long distance for two years. Persuaded her somehow then to move back to Belfast whenever I was moving from Northampton back to Belfast, uh, from, from Miami back to Belfast. Don't know how I did that, but uh, she convinced her somehow to do that, and then we all went well. We got uh, we got engaged, got married, uh, had our uh, two kids, and then once I retired from rugby, we wanted to. It was always the agreement that we we're going to go back, or you know, live in the states long term. Um, you know, Northern Ireland's a great country; it'll always be home to me, anyway. And, um, but I just think the opportunity out in America is uh, something that was, you know, we couldn't turn down. Texas, the reason why there, you know, at the time it, it was, it still is, you know, and comparatively, you know, fairly reasonably good cost of living place. Um, people are great, weather's great. That was a big thing, actually, the weather wise, we wanted to go live somewhere where the, 
you know, for the most part of the year, you get sun uh, all, all year round. And you don't have to stick on, you know, 10 layers each time you go out the house and, and all that. Um, yeah, opportunity for work as well. I think that's a big thing. You know, there, there's, um, you know, they, they say America is what you make of it. You know, if you're willing to work hard and, and kind of, uh, you know, do all that and you're ambitious, then the world is your oyster kind of thing. So, and, and the schools are great for the kids. You're going to start school next year too. So uh, that, that was the reason why Texas, we kind of took a plunge and, and moved to a place called Frisco uh, and then McKinney, which is besides about 30 miles north of Dallas. Um, it's been great, yeah. We're, we're five years, almost coming up five years. Hopefully, get the citizenship this year, and uh, yeah, it's been a good move for us. Nice one. And so, plan just stay there and keep working uh, with Tackle Smart and the agency and base yourself there in Frisco. Yeah, yeah. That's the long term. Is is to stay. We've got no no plans. We just uh, bought a house there last year, so um, yeah, long term is going to be out there and. Uh, as I say, yeah, the agency, I think it'll be exciting kind of nine years ahead leading up leading up to the World Cup out here. And um, I think uh, Tackle Smart has a lot of potential as well. At the moment, it's pretty much me doing it full time, which obviously is uh, time constraint, constraints wise is, is, has its difficulties. But uh, there's a few exciting things in the pipeline, getting involved with a couple of uh, ex-NFL players as well to try and take that to the next level too. So. Yeah, that's that's the idea as well, and uh, the wife's business is going well, and yeah, we're all, we're all happy, happy with the move, and um, yeah, we like to travel, get back, and see uh, back to Belfast as much as possible too. That's brilliant. Well, fair play with it all, and best luck with it, and uh, cheers for your time. No worries at all. Thanks for having me on. Cheers for clicking in. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. I work with young ambitious players and help them get to the next level. If you want to put together a plan so that you hit the ground running next season and have your best season ever on the field, jump over to my Instagram now at offfieldrugby and book a free call with me. The link is in the bio and we'll chat about where you are now, where you want to get to and what you need to do to get there. People who level up are the ones that take action and if you just do what you've always done, you'll get the same results and then you don't want to be sitting here next year in 12 months time thinking, ah, wish it would have been different. Thanks Emil for clicking in today, really appreciate it. Please send the pod on to some friends and also leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. Cheers, have a good one.